Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Craft, coming to you from KKXX Studios. Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with us another Tuesday evening where we have the opportunity to reflect into the richness of those who bore witness to our great Christian Catholic faith in primitive Christianity, which has us, of course, in the Church Fathers. And so, uh, as I do from one Tuesday to the next, I have John O'Hara with me. So, John, it is great to have you with me another Tuesday. Thank you, Joe. So, John, we are in this, what we would call the Nicene era or the Golden Era age of doctrine. So in this age, um, we've had the chance to look back at a time of great teachers. Up to this point, uh, we have talked about St. Athanasius, who of course gave us our Trinitarian faith, its definitive expression. Uh, The same saint, of course, created something of a sensation by writing a biography of St. Anthony of Egypt and inspiring uh, many thousands of men and women to flee the world and become hermits, monks, and nuns, as we talked about uh, in Uh, Cappadocia, we have the great bishop, St. Basil the Great, who we will be talking about tonight, this evening. And really our focus is going to be about what makes this man great, right? His contributions in the area of monasticism, liturgy, theology, and certainly charitable work will be at the heart of our discussion. And we've also had the opportunity during this great era to reflect into the church historian Eusebius, um, his ecclesiastical history, and how important was that to our understanding of history, and of course, uh, one of the great catechetical bishops, St. Cyril of Jerusalem. In this golden age of doctrine, what we have really, John, is a nod to sacred tradition. And by that I mean uh, the power of the Holy Spirit working through the instrument of the Church. Remember what Christ said in Matthew 28, 20, Lo, I am with you all. Always. That last verse from the Gospel of Matthew, huh? Lo, I will be with you until the end of the world. Amen. You know, I was asked a question just yesterday, John. Well, if Jesus was here, ah, 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 no, he is here. Not in the way, John, we would talk about, you know, maybe a loved one who passed away and the spirit of that person's here. No, he is here, and this was his promise in the Holy Spirit. Remember, 2 Thessalonians 2.15, pass on the oral transmission of the faith, right? Sacred tradition. Um, this is a mode of transmission. So this is very important so that it is the Holy Spirit guiding the church, uh, guiding Holy Mother Church. Uh, and again, we should never forget the fundamental role of the church that Christ came to establish was to bear witness to truth, not in some abstract form, but in concrete reality. Why? Because truth is a person. And we need to speak to that for what it is, lest we fall into this mindset of wishing Jesus was here. And of course, the sum total of that truth is, that is the truth of Christ's presence here on earth, is the Eucharist, where we know that the flesh dwells among us. Uh, So, Uh, all very important. Now, our figure today, St. Basil the Great, in some regard, John, uh, you will hear echoes of St. Cyril of Jerusalem, because in St. Cyril of Jerusalem, 
there was an emphasis on uh, his holiness. There was an, uh, an emphasis on his spiritual and corporal works of mercy. Certainly, St. Basil the Great, not to be outdone, uh, has something very, very important to offer us. One thing St. Basil the Great have is his spectacular cathedral named after him in, oh, of all places, Red Ro- Square, Moscow. Yes. That is St. Basil the Great. He's yeah. the patron saint of Russia to this day. Yeah. And through all of that communist stuff with Stalin waving from the wall of the Kremlin, right across the street is the yeah. Great Cathedral. And I think it's one of the most... Anyway, uh, yeah, St. Basil was born in 330 and died in 379 at the age of 49. So he did not live a long time. And he came from excellent, as good a stock as you're going to ever find. <laughs> Nobody, anyway, his father had a mother who was a saint, St. Marcios, I think her name is. And then his mother... His mother's father was a martyr. So this is, you know, we have two saints in the family. And there were ten kids in the family. Uh, St. Basil was a bishop. His brother, St. Gregory of Nyssa, was a bishop. He's also a father and doctor of the church. He has another brother, Peter, who was a bishop. And then he has a sister named Macrina. She is a saint named after her grandmother. Mm-hmm. So, wow. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. That, that's good pedigree. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he had a very good, ed- I mean, a top-notch education in Athens and Constantinople. And I and he did not get baptized until he was an adult. I think it, I'm not sure how common it was, but he did not get baptized until he was an adult. And once he was baptized, wow, mm-hmm. he came on fire. Yeah, he did. And what's interesting, John, as you talk about his saintly stock or saintly pedigree is the fact that he did have a later conversion from his own writings. And I wanted to read uh, a few lines from his own testimony because there were a number of things that, that struck me about it. He says this, Much time had I spent in vanity. Remember what vanity means in Latin, vanus, which literally translates emptiness or a waste Ooh. of time. A waste of time. huh? So he went on to say, and had wasted nearly all my youth acquiring the sort of wisdom made foolish by God. Then once, like a man roused from deep sleep, I turned my eyes to the marvelous light of the truth of the gospel, and I then perceived the uselessness of the wisdom of the rulers of this world who are doomed to pass away. I wept many tears over my miserable life, and I prayed that I might receive guidance to admit me to the doctrines of the true religion. So you have this profound interior movement of the heart, which John awakens him to the truth of Jesus Christ. There was nothing subtle or lukewarm about his conversion. Another thing he had was a good friend. Mm -hmm. At these schools, he had a guy named Gregory who would become Bishop of Nazians, and he's St. Gregory of Nazians. In fact, I think they both have their feast days on the same day. And at his uh, funeral, Gregory of Nazianza said, you know, we were like one soul with two bodies. Mm -hmm. We were like Mm -hmm. bosom buddies, all for the faith. Yeah, which is well documented by the Church. You know, we have in the history of the Church, you know, these relationships. I'm thinking of uh, St. Clair of Assisi and St. Francis, uh, John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila. You know, a unique bond that is rooted in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Profound. You know, as, as we talk about his conversion... I was personally struck by how it drew me into maybe the most famous quote of all the Church Fathers. We haven't talked about St. Augustine yet, but tell me uh, if you've heard this quote before, John, and for all of you listeners out there, you probably know what I'm about to say. St. Augustine, right, in his confession says this, 
Late have I loved you, O beauty, ever ancient, ever new. Late have I loved you. You were within me, but I was outside, and it was there that I searched for you. You broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath, and now I pant for you. I have tasted you, now I hunger and thirst for more. You touched me, and I burned for your peace. Again, <laughs> this kind of holy longing, John. Yeah. There's nothing lukewarm about this. You know, we have that passage, and if we are lukewarm, this passage should awaken us. Revelation 3.16, if you are lukewarm, I will spit, or pending translation, vomit you out of my mouth. Think about that, John. I mean, if you are lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit wants us to see such a, a crude image, because that's what sin is. It's crude and it's crass. And don't be lukewarm. Be like one who has a laser-like focus on the end goal. And for us as Christians, that end goal is Jesus Christ. That reminds me of your opening remarks, Christ is with us, that Remark that mm -hmm. both from that famous quote from St. Augustine mm -hmm. and also our saint for today, St. Basil the Great. Christ was right there, mm -hmm. you know, and Christ mm -hmm. is right here for us, Amen. as you mentioned earlier. Amen. And so, as you noted, you said, watch out, you know, after he was baptized, John. Uh, what is baptism about? I, I want to get into the heart of what makes St. Basil great, okay? If you read about St. Basil, every book you read, there's an emphasis on his holiness, but what is holiness? You know, the word literally means to be set apart. When Paul is writing in his epistles, he talks about being sanctified in Jesus Christ. In the Greek there, hagiazo, that word means to be set apart. We are set apart in our baptism. So first and foremost, holiness is a life that is faithful to our baptismal vows. And our baptismal vows are about that obedient sonship in Christ. This is what ultimately leads to St. Basil uh, to be such a great light uh, because of his sonship in Christ. He saw all things in light of Christ. You know, what have we said in the past, John, as it relates to uh, the light and the world as, you know, of course, the gospel and Paul juxtaposes these two realities. The greater the darkness, the greater our light shines. And this is what comes shining through in the life of St. Basil the Great. If you were to go into history, we have a number of greats, not a lot, but we do have a number of them. And yeah, their example of holiness, as witnessed in their preaching, teaching, evangelization, and leadership are about what makes saints saints, and to some degree, great. But when you see that, John, especially in times of persecution and hardship, there is something about it that goes above and beyond. Um, and when you uh, contribute to the church historically in a way that he did, it lends itself to this title, the great. Benedict XVI, in his summary of him, mentions three things, the holiness of his life, the excellence of his teaching, and the harmonious synthesis of his speculative mm. and practical gifts. Holiness of his life. Mm -hmm. One of the first things he did is he went out and explored monasticism in his time. He would go to Egypt. He would go to the uh, monks around him, both aromatical and ascetical, mm -hmm. and he looked at these two things. And then jumping ahead, when he became a bishop, he had monks who were not necessarily like parish monks. They weren't necessarily yes. closed like yeah. Saint Benedict. They were. They almost reminded me of um, the mendicant. Oh, mendicant. Yeah, 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 yeah. They they travel around. 
and do it. And that seemed to be what he was interested in. Yeah. And then it seemed to me that he got into excellence of teaching and writing, and his talents are recognized, and immediately the pressure comes to be an administrator. Mm-hmm. And consequently, he's a bishop. Yeah. And he has to deal with the world as it is, and yet he wants to be holy at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and as you spoke to the uh, monasticism there in those three points, John, one of the things to highlight is he really is. Okay, let me take a step back. We talked about St. Anthony of Egypt as being um, kind of the unknown father of monasticism, and rightfully so because he's the first monk, quote-unquote, right? Monk coming from Latin monos meaning alone. Uh, historically, we look to St. Benedict as saying, okay, he's the father of Western monasticism because he gives us the rule of life, right? Ora et labora, this prayer and labor, uh, this companionship of these two towers, you know, contemplation and action. Yet, I think it was John Paul II who made note that if we are going to talk about a father to the rule of life, it is actually St. Basil the Great. He's the one who establishes more collectively what this contemplation and action looks like. Remember, this is a guy, a bishop, who establishes the first schools, the first hospitals, the, the, the major monasteries uh, before anyone else. I'm looking down here real quick, John, at the quote from John Paul II. He says this, For this reason, in light of what we just talked about, many people think that the essential structure of the life of the church monasticism was established for all time, mainly by St. Basil, or that at least it was not defined in its more specific nature without his decisive contribution. So it's no wonder why we look at him as being so great. Um, He is a man who in many ways gave shape and form to the way in which we look at schools and hospitals today. Certainly, a number of them were destroyed, John, and they were rebuilt by the Benedictines. But I tell you what, to appreciate and understand St. Basil for who he is, is to appreciate the integrity of what makes us Christian. If we talk about the two towers of monasticism being prayer and labor, ora et labora, then the two towers of Christianity more collectively are the spiritual works of mercy and the corporal works of mercy right? Uh Uh, That is what uh, many speak to as they speak to how St. Basil really defines that integritas of the Christian faith. You know, there's a lot of talk about social teachings of the church, and he was right in there on the ground floor, Mm. and uh, he even made a statement which, you know, saying that no one should be better off than this poorest neighbor. Now, you can take that in numerous different ways, but mm-hmm. we need to be concerned about our poor people and see that they have enough to make them a dignified human being. Yeah. And he was another, another one of his writings is, you know, we reflect Christ's dignity. Mm-hmm. Christ was a human being yeah. as well as God. Yeah. And, and therefore look at you, human being, you've got a lot of worth in you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's right. Choice, yeah. The, the first principle of any matter, of any topic, as a concerned social justice, John, is the dignity of the human person, that we are all created equally, in spite of what the culture of death says out there, in spite of what the world says out there, in spite of what secularism says out there, we are all created equally in the eyes of God. I happened to be listening to the radio, John. I was traveling long distance, and I caught some 
some host from ESPN, and he was carrying on about what makes certain people special. And he made the comment that people like LeBron James, Oprah Winfrey, and others are different. They're just better because of what Ooh. they can do. Really? Really? I mean, this flies in the face of the most ancient truth as it relates to who we are. Because it's who we are based upon exclusively what we do, autonomous from our sonship in God? No! No, because why? We are not human doings, but we are human beings. Our works are what they are called to be when they come out from that living relationship with Jesus Christ, huh? So this is why we have the call to enter into that daily conversation with God, that we are doing what we are supposed to be doing. John, to suggest on any level that one person is greater than the next is, is very, very dangerous and certainly a judgment that we cannot make. But again, I go there and I talk about that host because that is just a microcosm of the way we think culturally, right? That is just an example and an illustration of how we've come to think today in 2014. And what St. Basil reminds us is, and as you just talked about, John, there's so much more that we have to offer the world when we do not belong to the world, but Jesus Christ. And when we come to understand that, as St. Basil did, then what are we going to do? We're going to build schools. We're going to build hospitals. We're going to have a heart for the poor. I was asked a question about two months ago, and I've been asked this before. It was actually from the radio program. Someone said, Joe, what makes a saint saint? What is the one thing that every saint has in common? We've been talking about a lot of saints here, John, uh, and each saint has his or her own charism, huh? What do they all have in common? A heart for the poor. A heart for the poor. That's what they have in common. They have many other things in common, but they all have have in common a heart for the poor. Why? Because what did Jesus say? To the least you do unto my brethren, you do unto me. All right? It's not to the least you do unto your brethren, um, you hurt me or affect me. You do to me. To me. Right? (laughs) Every single poor person out there is a vicarious Christi. You know? Yes in the feet of Christ. So, uh, very important to embrace and understand. And why are we talking about this? Because this is what makes St. Basil so great. I mean, what is his contribution to the church? (laughs) Oh my gosh. I mean, he gives us the rule of life to monasticism. He built all these schools, these churches, these monasteries. Wow. Yeah, right. Uh, You know, I just don't think we're going to be talking about LeBron James, 1,700 years from now. I mean, I wish him well. I hope he has a good season. Um, that's, a, that's a great point, John, because even, in, and I don't want to go on some crazy tangent right now, but even the, the great sports figures that we've enshrined in this Hall of Fame or that Hall of Fame, they're, they're not the center of every dining room conversation 20 years later, 15 years later. You know. Now, uh, he lived uh, during the time of Arianism. And there were two huge issues uh, in the church at this time. Uh, we know we know about Protestantism and we know about Arianism. And when he was around, one of the books I read says, you could count the number of Orthodox bishops on the fingers of your hands, and maybe even on the fingers of one hand. Mm-hmm. He was Orthodox. Now, Arianism began to wane a little bit, and then it went on to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wasn't really God. Mm-hmm. But he stuck with this. And eventually, Arianism kind of withered away. Mm-hmm. And Valens, the emperor whom we heard about uh, last week with St. Cyril of Jerusalem and before, he eventually passed on. 
and uh, things got a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And, but I'm really grateful to these guys, these fathers of the church, that stuck with God and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, our God. Mm-hmm. One God, three persons. Yeah. Yeah, and as we talk about Arianism and certainly this, this demotion of Christ's divinity as well as the Holy Spirit, it was St. Basil who gives us um, the, the classic work on the Holy Spirit. The, yes. the discipline or study the Holy Spirit in more uh, traditional terms we call pneumatology, right, uh, which is simply the study of the Holy Spirit. St. Basil has a work that is just a home run on um, how the Holy Spirit is also God and how the Holy Spirit must always be equated and glorified with the Father and with the Son. For this reason, Benedict XVI notes, St. Basil was one of the great fathers who formulated the doctrine on the Trinity, the one God, precisely because he is love, is a God in three persons who form the most profound unity that exists, the divine unity that is about love. Again, why do we say what we say, John, when we talk about uh, Jesus Christ being with us? Because he gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit. And wherever the Holy Spirit goes, he makes Jesus present, incarnate, uh, of course, most especially uh, in the Eucharist. So uh, very important. And I would be remiss if we didn't touch upon the Eucharist here, John, from his writings, because he speaks beautifully to the Eucharist. He speaks beautifully to the Eucharist as it relates to baptism. And we don't always get that relationship, or we don't always have um, the insights that we need. And, and so this is what he says, and this is actually Benedict XVI commenting on this. He says, Basil, St. Basil the Great, reminds us that to keep alive our love for God and for men, we need the Eucharist, the appropriate food for the baptized, which can nourish the new energies that derive from baptism. It is a cause of immense joy to be able to take part in the Eucharist. He goes on, uh, instituted to preserve unceasingly the memory of the one who died and rose for us. The Eucharist, an immense gift of God, preserves in each one of us the memorial of the baptismal seal and makes it possible to live the grace of baptism uh, to the full and in fidelity. And St. Basil encourages the faithful to just not go to the church and mass on Sunday, but every day if possible. He makes a comment, we should go to communion every day. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. They, yeah. Okay, it sounds y- like St. Y- Pius X. Yeah. yeah, and this is part of his holiness. He uh-huh. understands, as all saints do, you just don't always get it in writing, John. You know, this is part of his piety. This is what set, you know— how often do we make excuses? Well, I wasn't able to go to Mass today for this reason or that mm-hmm. reason, let alone on Sunday. I mean, Sunday's the bare minimum, right? But being a steward of our time, that we might make all the sacrifices necessary so as to receive our Lord in the Eucharist. I'll never forget, John. I'll never forget my first year teaching over at Notre Dame, what a seventh grader told me. We were talking about the Eucharist. And she says, Mr. H., if Jesus is truly present in the Eucharist as you say he is. And I'm coming to believe it. I understand what you mean to say and say to mean when you talk about the true presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. But if that's true definitively, why are there not lines down the street to receive him? 
I thought, that's a great question. (laughs) A question that I cannot answer. Aside of the fact that, you know, we pray as Scripture prays. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, that's the great prayer, is it not, John? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's what we pray as faithful uh, Christians and Catholics, for all those Catholics out there, to be mindful that when we go to Mass, what we are receiving is Jesus truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. And again, this is part of St. Basil's writings. He was always encouraging reflection into the mystery of the Eucharist. It's interesting, of our Eucharistic prayers within the Eucharistic rite itself, John, one of the great Eucharistic prayers we receive from St. Ba- uh, Basil. That's correct. Uh, and so, you know, again, another contribution from this great saint. One little, uh, just to show how prescient he is, we have a issue current today, and he says this. Oh, yes. A woman who has deliberately destroyed a fetus must pay the penalty for murder. Mm. That was before 379. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about that. Say that again, John. I think our listening audience needs to hear a that. A woman moment. who has deliberately destroyed a fetus must pay the penalty for murder. Mm. Well, he just said what it is, yes. you know. I mean, just yeah. say he just said what abortion is. 1,700 years ago, John. Yes. I mean, <laughs> 1,700 years ago. This, is, this isn't this is something new under the sun, right? right? And so, uh, again, he offers us many things, and maybe on one level of bearing witness to life, the most important thing, that for us today, 2014, if we are going to go to the foot of the cross, then we do so on that front of being unapologetically pro-life. You know, we were talking last week, John, about um, the importance of the silent witness, and sometimes we don't always see the fruit, which is okay. It's probably good for us not to always see that fruit, right? Over the past five, six years, I've had the opportunity to go, John, to walk for Life West Coast, as I know you have. And there, there was an interesting encounter I had with a young lady two years ago. Two years previous to that, she was on her honeymoon, right? Doing her thing there on the honeymoon, seeing the sights. And uh, uh, quite unexpectedly did she come across these 30,000, 35,000 walkers walking down uh, Embarcadero Street. And it so moved her and so touched her. And apparently she had gotten a conversation with a number of walkers that she vowed to come back because on that day her heart moved from pro-choice to pro-life so and she did two years later and i had the chance to talk to her and just a wonderful wonderful testimony just that silent witness just Mm -hmm. being there at the foot of the cross and so the pro-life front is very important for us so certainly saint basil what what does he have to teach us today 2014 john a lot among many things certainly the importance of seeing abortion for what it is, murder. Any closing thoughts, John? His feast day, as well as St. Gregory of Nassianson, is on... Uh, January 2nd, I January think. 7th. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah. January 2nd. I just really like the fact that he combined so many great things. Mm-hmm. He was holy, he could write well and teach well, and he was an administrator par excellence mm-hmm. in a time when uh, the Church had difficulties, as it does today, as it has had every century. Yeah, a man who founded monasteries, hospitals, schools. He preached, he catechized, he taught, he wrote, he was an administrator. 
St. Basil the Great. Wow. Yes. Let us close in prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.